the way established healthcare has defined prevention is go get your mammogram, go get your colonoscopy. That's not true prevention. That's early detection. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you're not preventing anything. You're just finding out earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and get a ton of them because then you're good, bound to find something sooner or later. Right? It's Evie here. Welcome to EML Radio, where we are always talking truth. All of those things you need to hear that nobody else is willing to say. Hello, my friends. We are talking some very exciting and inspiring truth today. So I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Duke Johnson, who is one of the founding members of the Heart of Hope Healthcare Clinic here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, So he will further introduce himself, but I just wanted to let you know that this conversation left me feeling super excited and hopeful about the future of healthcare, not just in here in my local community, but the future of healthcare in our nation. So I know you are going to enjoy this discussion as much as I did, and I know that you are going to leave the discussion feeling invigorated and hopeful about some exciting new things that all of us can expect in healthcare in future years. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Evie. My name is Dr. Duke Johnson, as you well know, and I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Heart of Hope Health. And in this interesting time period, we're trying to see if we can make a change in how healthcare is delivered and and, uh, forge a new pathway. Awesome. And it's happening all over this country. It is. And I think it's almost been, uh, you know, encouraged. I mean, in other words, if people are going down, are are kind of almost being forced to go on a certain pathway and they don't feel comfortable with that, they look for alternatives. And and that's what people are doing almost in mass right now is looking for alternatives and even taking healthcare responsibility into their own hands, which isn't necessarily the best, but it gives you an idea of what's going on in the hearts of people. Yep, absolutely. So um, let's back up a little bit to when it was a conversation. Well, you and I first met. We didn't really necessarily meet, but you were Mm -hmm. speaking at a meeting that we were both at. Mm -hmm. um, And I was very intrigued by, for one, what was just going on in healthcare. It was interesting to be able to sit in and hear from people kind of in the trenches. And then people like yourself with a deep background, you know, how many years? 30 years? Yeah, in in prevention, exactly. Um, In prevention, uh, healthcare. So to be able to hear from you, I was like, this is something I want to dig more into. Okay. I I mean, the whole reason that I have this show Mm -hmm. is so that people can have completely unbiased, Mm -hmm. right? Just access to not just information, but more importantly, personal stories. Okay. Because I think we all, especially nowadays, we're so inundated Mm -hmm. with nothing but information. Yes. All day long, we can't escape it. Right. Where for one, we don't know what to believe. And for two, we just start tuning it out because it's just more noise. Mm-hmm. So the whole reason two years ago that I started this show was for people to be able to come on, share their story, mm-hmm. show that we're all just humans yeah. trying to figure all this stuff out. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And bring some humanity back. There you go. To to information, to 
like basically almost like a source of news that people are getting hmm. where it's no longer just noise, but it's actually, these are real people yeah. and real people that want to share their story to help people think. There you go. And you'll remember stories too. Like how much do you remember off of some blip you see on the news, right? Not much. Exactly. But if someone is sitting in front of you and sharing their personal story with you, right. you remember that stuff. That's true. Yep. Which was what I kind of grasped onto when I first heard you speaking. Okay. Um, so if you would go back a little bit and tell us like in medicine, kind of where you started. Okay. Um, and then how that evolved sure. into where you are now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, perfect. Thanks. And and what I, I was... Uh, always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little boy, you know, and it's kind of interesting because I was born and raised in North Idaho. In fact, my family lineage goes back to pretty much when Idaho became a state. So the lineage goes way back. Wow. A, what year would that be? Around 1890. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so people, and, and I just grew up in the mountains and the forests and the trees, and that's who I was. And just from a little boy, I just always had a desire to be a doctor. And I don't know where it came from. I just yeah. did. And so fortunately, I was, my dad had gone, even though he was from this area, he went to UCLA. So I had the opportunity to go there and undergraduate, graduate, med school, and a great med school, terrific med school and training, taught by some of the top minds that there are in medicine, mm -hmm. and was interested in emergency medicine, started off in a level one trauma center in Southern California. And I had a, uh, a young man come into the ER one day that changed my life. I never got a chance to speak with him, but he absolutely changed my life. And uh, he because he was brought in by paramedics in full cardiac arrest. And and young man, like thirty-eight. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and and see, at that time period, there there was absolutely unheard of. Right. And and I'd actually seen some in their forties, et cetera, but somehow, with the reason this young man impacted me so greatly was that we were getting absolutely no response. He didn't have the risk factors or the traditional reasons that we knew of as to why he should be there. And um, I, I knew I'd done enough codes to realize that he probably wasn't going to make it. But I didn't want to wait until it was over to tell the family. So what I did is I went out in the waiting room to let the family know and kind of prepare them for the concept. And I opened the door and out in the waiting room was his sweet wife and 10-year-old little girl. And, and when I walked up to them, they were the only ones in the waiting room. And they had this look of love in their eyes where... Everyone is important, and I have fought for life my whole career. And everyone is important, but when I looked into their eyes, I could see their love was so deep. I thought, in my, on that gurney in the emergency room is a great man. I don't know who he is, but he's a great man, and I don't want him to die. I didn't want this little family to be faced with that. So I went in and did everything I could do. The... the um, it just wasn't going well. We weren't getting any response. We went through our whole protocol, and I just didn't want to stop. And so I said, you know, defibrillate again. Let's give more medication. And the nurses started looking at me. We had a great, terrific crew, and I just didn't want to stop the code. And finally, after going way beyond normal, I finally called the code, and I walked over to the door. And sometimes what I've said is that the door between the emergency room and the waiting room is the heaviest door in the world. You don't want to open that door. And so I grabbed the door, and as I'm telling you the story, I see it vividly because this gentleman changed my life. And sometime, and so I opened the door, and they could tell from the look of, uh, in my eyes that he didn't make it. And they both started crying with a pain I could feel. It was palpable. 
And normally you're taught that you have to keep an emotional distance so that you can think clearly. And, and sure. But at that moment in time, there wasn't anyone else in the emergency room. There wasn't anyone else in the waiting room. I'd done everything I I could do. I said everything I could say. There was nothing left. And so I just walked over and I put my hands on both of them and stood there and cried with them. And while I'm putting my hands on their shoulders, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. I, there's, even though I had one of the finest medical educations in the world, literally, <clears throat> there isn't a reason why a young man is here. He shouldn't be here. He didn't have the typical risk factors. Why did this happen? And I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my career patching people together who shouldn't be here in the first place. So I started going into prevention. And at that time, there wasn't any, any, um, uh, you know, real true prevention uh, training available. So I just kind of did it by the seat of my pants and I started doing health risk <laughs> what appraisal. What year was this? That was I'm like... make you age yourself. <laughs> oh, please. Uh, I, I, I always appreciate that. I'm just here God, to help you out. God bless you. Okay, so it was about oh. 1987. Oh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like that long. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you. Okay, good. And... Um, and so what happened was we, we um, um, I, I found a company that would do health risk appraisals in major corporations in Southern California because I had moved down there and stayed down there and I met my wife down there. And, and we, um, we, we would go into large corporations and do blood work, et cetera, to try to prevent them, you know, and warn them in advance about, you know, potential risks. And the company was really successful. I became kind of the, one of their main Southern California doctors. And so we had really big clients and, and Southern California Edison and, you know, Arco and Allergan and, you know, a lot of, a lot of well-known companies. Right. And it was a great experience. And then they sold to become to an HMO. And I didn't want to do that. So I... Then when, well, why was that? Like, well, that the, goes that speaks a lot to where you've taken your career and well, stuff as no, well. Right? That's a great question because at that time HMOs were, in essence, focused all of healthcare on money. You know, in other words, spend as little as possible, and and we will reward you basically for not spending much money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, any money you don't spend on a patient then goes back to the group and is kind of like a profit-sharing situation. I mean, I might not be using the sure. correct terminology, but, you know, that's the idea. The gist of it. Right. So, in other words, the more you more money you can keep from spending, the more it comes back to the doctors, which somehow I didn't want to have my focus on life, you know, on, on my patient care based upon the money exactly. You know I mean? In other words... So it, it just didn't seem ethical. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I, I know enough now to start my own company, and I, I did. And and our first customer was a company in Buena Park that was happened to be the largest supplement manufacturer in the world. Okay. And so what they did was they had about eight or nine hundred employees in their facility, and they wanted a health risk appraisal program. And so oh, okay. what we did is they were self-insured, and we did in at the end of the first year, we saved them twenty five percent on their healthcare costs which good programs like that do. Right, absolutely. And so the CEO came to us and he said, oh my gosh, I want to keep you guys forever because (laughs) you're saving me a lot more than I'm paying you, right? And so we did that for a few years and he said, well, why don't we take this to distributors around the world? I mean, because they're the ones that are selling our product. We want them to live a long time. Mm -hmm. So we had some programs and the first program was a group from Germany that they, and so the largest distributors in all of Europe came through this first program of 30 people. 
And I didn't know anything about the healthcare of Germany, right? Yeah. So if you're going to be speaking to people that are running through hundreds of millions of dollars in volume, you better know your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to check with the CDC. I had to check with <clears throat> Ministry of Health of Germany. I really needed to know my stuff mm-hmm. to represent that corporation. And the, the program was very successful. They loved it. And so then two weeks later, they said, well, we got a group coming through from Brazil. And I go, okay, great. I don't know anything about Brazil. (laughs) And it went on like this until they finally decided to build this beautiful center of optimal health. We ran 17,000 people from around the world through that program. And a lot of the leaders said, wow, we can't send out everybody here. Can you come to our country? So I ended up speaking in 30 different countries around the world. TV interviews, newspaper, speaking in audiences of thousands, teaching true preventive medicine from all different cultures, et cetera, et cetera, became pretty knowledgeable on a lot of that stuff. And I loved it because it was incredibly busy and the volume of the company grew uh, dramatically. During that time period, we went from 750 million in annual sales to 4.7 billion while I was there in 14 years. Just busy as could be, exciting, fun time. So, I mean, so, and when I left that company a number of years ago, what I decided to do is start my own company that would make unique, exclusive products so that, because there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's great, got great science to it that a lot of people don't know how to understand and market, and we know how to do that. So, in the midst of all of that came this current pandemic when... I'm talking longevity, and the world's talking about, oh, my gosh, you're going to die in two weeks. <laughs> They're like, Urge. like, scratch the record. Exactly. <laughs> Hold up, not so fast. Hold up, not so fast. <laughs> you're just trying to live for the next hour. Right, I don't care about longevity. <laughs> Heck with you, buddy. Oh, longevity means the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Oh, not geez. a good, great position. So is that when you came up back? Into Idaho, or at what point in that actually, had you relocated, actually, relocated up here? Great question. I actually I moved back in '99 because what, oh, okay. what we wanted to do is is we wanted to raise our kids rurally, like I was raised, mm-hmm. and 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 in fact, after they were here for about ten years, I thought I know, I don't even know what their favorite thing in life was. You know, I mean, because Southern California has got a certain lifestyle, right? We yep. all know about that. Yep. And so I asked my my daughters. What's your f- most favorite things to do? And they go, oh, um, canoeing, uh, fishing, backpacking, huckleberry picking. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, if we just stayed in California, <laughs> none of those, none would, of have those been things would have been on. those the list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, we made the right move. Yeah. So we wanted to raise them here. So all of that traveling I was doing, I was flying from up here uh, to, like, major airports oh, to okay. go around the world. So, gotcha. yeah, we, we moved back in 99. Okay. Um, so then when <laughs> – how to breach that. It's like, okay, so when this pandemic hit, right? what happened for okay. you personally in that, okay. I mean, everything we know, everything kind of came to a screeching halt. No yeah. one's thinking about longevity and preventative anything. Right. Um, so where did that, how did that leave you here? Well, you know, I, I have a, a little bit of a unique perspective compared to most people for the following reason. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was medical director of that health mm-hmm. institute, um, I had SARS one came through in two thousand three four in that time period. This is what I was going to ask you about. Exactly, this is something that you were speaking to, and I was like, "This is a guy I need to talk more. Uh, people need to hear you yeah. for one." And I personally wanted to learn 
sure. more from you. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yep. I, and so and so what happened was as medical director, it, it became a, of this whole multi-billion dollar corporation, which in my wildest imaginations, this guy who just grew up in the hills and mountains <laughs> of Idaho, I never dreamed that that could possibly occur. But yeah. but it did. And so what, what happened was during that time period, all of the affiliates around the world um, would ask us for advice, medical advice, health advice, et cetera. We became, after doing this for 14 years, we became pretty respected, you know, globally in the company. So what year was SARS-1? <clears throat> I think it was 2003, okay. or if I remember correctly, okay. maybe four, but somewhere right in there. Okay. And um, so the other affiliates were asking us about... Uh, well, should we travel? Should we go to conventions? Is it safe? What should we do to protect ourselves? I mean, they were, and so this was, you know, SARS-1 is a coronavirus. And right. so I knew, I, I had to research and investigate SARS and coronaviruses before like 99.99% of the people in the United States, sure. right? I mean, it was like, that was my role. And so and so what we could see from that was that it was, um, it, it, you know, and so I, with giving that advice, the whole pandemic at that time period ran a seven-month course. It went away without uh, any shots or vaccines or et cetera, and it hasn't been seen anywhere in the world since 2006, okay? So when this broke out, I thought, oh, I've been here before. I know this, right? And so... And so people were saying, well, there's going to be like a 9% death rate. And I'm going, well, that's, that's not going to be accurate. Let me check to see what I can find. And in March 16th, I actually posted this on a website that I thought from what I could see from the World Health Organization and other statistics, but because I was used to really digging deeply sure. into the, the data, right? I right. mean, I had to. Because if you're standing uh, on a stage of thousands of people with cameras on you that are being shown around the country <clears throat> representing a multi-billion dollar company, you better be well-versed if, <laughs> if you want longevity with that company, right? It's so funny that you just said that because just yesterday I write my Daily Truth article, right? A big, right. long article every single morning. Uh-huh. And that was the topic of conversation in my article just yesterday was if you had to sit across hmm. from an expert uh-huh. in their field, in their respective field, don't you think you would probably have a better understanding about what you believe mm-hmm. and then also what you're trying to convince other people to yeah. believe along with you? Exactly. Do you really know why you believe what you believe? <laughs> exactly. Right. That's and crucial. we got way too many people with lots of voices out there and yes. opinions out there that really it's all just kind of hearsay, lip service. They don't even really realize what they believe and why they believe it. You're absolutely right. In mm-hmm. fact, they're 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 pushing off um, the definition of truth to other people to tell them what is true. Yep. And I've never been in that scenario. I mean, I that that in essence. Now, during medical school, you 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 have to kind of be this little minion that sucks in everything that everyone teaches you but I, but if there's contradictions you know we, we had the freedom at the time to say well you know mm-hmm. doctor i that differs from et cetera, et cetera. i mean mm-hmm. we had that freedom of course mm-hmm. but you're still kind of starry-eyed you're still kind of like oh my gosh these are like world famous people i better listen to everything they say sure. right okay right. but then you get to a point where like this gentleman the 38 year old male it's like oh that changed my, all of my thinking it's mm-hmm. like well what wasn't i taught there's something wrong here i'm missing something because he shouldn't be here you know et cetera, et cetera. right so fortunately not for that family of course but fortunately for me uh intellectually it it caused me to break out from the just believe everything that an expert tells you and yeah. and a lot of stuff's just filtered and, and honors honest actors yeah 
will not be bothered by being questioned. Absolutely. They will respect the person Absolutely. asking them. Absolutely. Like, I mean, we all step on our own selves sometimes, right? Yeah. And say things, okay, well, maybe that didn't come out quite right. I do it all the time. Like, this sure. is what I do every day. Right. So, of course, I don't say everything perfectly. But I personally respect when people have enough courage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And curiosity to question what I'm saying. Like, why are you saying that, Evie? You bet. Why is your guest saying what they're saying? Right. Because... I'm not going to be at the top of my game if I can't answer why exactly. I believe what I believe. Exactly. Not because someone told me. Definitely not because a politician told me oh or my a bureaucrat gosh. told you. Oh my gosh. You, you, <laughs> you know what you remind me of is is I actually, in the in the eighth grade, I did a comparative religion search. Okay. Now, oh. now a lot of people don't do that in junior high. No, okay, but I was not doing that in eighth grade. <laughs> I, I need to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what I was doing in eighth grade. Uh, okay. Okay. I, <laughs> That's I know for another conversation. I know I'm a little <laughs> odd. Okay. That's okay. I, I can handle it. Oh. But what happened was I um, really, I ha- somehow I believe there was God, but I didn't know where to find him. So I read all of these different books, looked in, uh, about different religions, studied them, because for some reason it was important for me to know. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, for me personally, I got to the point where it's like, oh, okay, Jesus is God, but I'm not going to go to church and I'm not going to read a Bible because we had some bad experiences, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Well, then I get to college and people are saying, well, can you teach a Bible study? And it's like, oh, no, no, I don't know squat. I, there's like no way I can. <laughs> we just need somebody to teach a basic one. We teach a basic one. Okay, okay, I'll teach a basic one okay so i put when i had i lived in a dorm of 700 or uh, students Mm -hmm. i put a little sign on my door basic bible study you know whatever one day a week okay (laughs) i get people knocking on my door and they go okay i'm studying to be a rabbi why do you think jesus is a messiah it's like uh, i don't know (laughs) but what happened was i and i everywhere in the like every religion in the world somehow lived in my dorm see so and and it was inquisitive and they wanted to know and i thought this is great because if I believe something that is wrong, I want to know now. I mean, yeah. in other words, I want to be challenged. I want those questions. If I'm wrong, I let me know. Exactly. Right? And they'd say, well, there are contradictions, da, 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 da. Well, let me check that out because if there are, I need to know. I mean, it ended up being like an unbelievably awesome experience for me. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I think that's where everyone needs to be is have an inquisitive mind. Absolutely. You know, don't just sit there and go... Uh, just teach me because I don't have time to learn and I trust yeah, you. Yeah, we're, we're losing that, right? We're losing Definitely. it. And it's Definitely. not just in young people. No. No, I'm like, no. I'm 49 years old. I see it, it just as much in my age range, your yeah. age range, as I do in younger generations. Yeah. This like, well, I read it somewhere and so that's what I believe. Yeah. And you know what blows me away is that how many people have become epidemiologists and and infectious disease specialists? Yeah. Okay. Just go on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> There's well, a lot of them. My my elderly <laughs> they mother. They were watching the View before the pandemic, but now they are experts. Exactly. I, I mean, my elderly mother. I mean, God bless her. She lived yeah. to be 96. My dad lived to be 97. Because you know, I focus on longevity, right? And so I'm going to help my parents get there as much sure. as I can, right? And I and um. But she lived in an assisted living facility for a while, and the the cook one day came out and yelled at her. And this is like a nice facility. Yelled at her for not having her mask on, and I'm thinking, since when did somebody who's in dietary become an infectious disease specialist? Yeah. I, no, I, I mean when I you know. think about that, everybody yep. is a specialist all of a sudden. Yes. How? Where? Where's your degree? Where is your training? Where's your background? Uh, you know, how do you know that? How do you know that you know that you know that? 
you're speaking my language. My personality, <laughs> you can imagine how well that goes over when someone like a flight attendant or someone right. wants to tell me how they're just trying to not get COVID and my mask isn't like the approved version of the right. mask. Like right. it's been a it's been a really good personal experience for me learning to like, okay, keep this in check because man, I don't like to be told what to do for one. Mm-hmm. Really kind of by anybody. That's just how I like I want I question everything. Yeah. I've been like that. <clears throat> yeah. Me too. Poor people that had to raise me, right? It was like, <laughs> I really want to know why. I'm not just going to believe you. Right. right? No, and, and that's good. Yeah, but this has been a challenge for me personally to keep exactly. in check. Like, okay, exactly. just move on. Exactly. And so that's why, I mean, I've just constantly been that kind of a person. I just, if, as well, I, I just have constantly. So what I found out in that March time period was that the death rate wasn't 9%. It was more like, 0.26% was the number I came to. Okay, well, the CDC then said like two months later, well, it's actually 0.25, okay? So in other words, I knew how to analyze the data. Mm-hmm. But then when people were saying, oh, well, this isn't going to go away without a vaccine, I'm thinking, well, what are they basing that on? Because shouldn't we be basing it on SARS-1? Which Because that been- would have been the logical. <laughs> I mean, I have I have no knowledge whatsoever in infectious disease, clearly. Right, right. Um, But even just common sense would tell you, okay, and then if it's not something to reflect back on the first, you know, on SARS-1, well, then why? How does it differ? Exactly. Exactly. Those just seem kind of really logical questions. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. See, that's just pure logic. And, and, And it's like, okay, so wouldn't it be true if these guidelines are so incredibly important that people who don't follow them should all be dead right now? Right. You know, I mean, so in other words, well, you know, why aren't the homeless all dead? Why, I mean, you know, because they didn't social distance, they didn't wear masks. Why, you know, certainly it spread around those communities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, why, why aren't there mass casualties there? Mm-hmm. I mean, because there, there's a tremendous close, uh, and they, they didn't take anything, didn't do anything, didn't go anywhere. And I mean, lack of hygiene and everything exactly. else. I mean, exactly all the actual things that do prevent the spread of disease, right? Exactly. They're not even practicing those basics. Exactly. And and see and, and some of the, the the most crowded countries in the world don't have the death rates that we have here, and so it's like see when you start saying wait wait maybe maybe there's some gaps. I I would hope that people would kind of go there, you know, mm-hmm. because because we've gotten to a point we, unfortunately where if unless somebody has followed a certain guideline, well then you can't see the doctor now. I mean you know in other words my mother in law. My, my mother, my own mother. Yeah, I wanted you to tell this story, too. You're hitting everything I was going to ask you, so this is great. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're I... saving me a lot of work. I love it. Good. <laughs> I, I, I'm too verbose. Sorry. Yeah, I, good. I shoot the breeze. Oh. Um, um, the on talk button is on, so I'm going to go. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's part what stimulated me for what's going on was that, you know, I was helping her. She was being treated for breast cancer, my mother, and 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 all of a sudden at the start of the pandemic, it was like, no, you can't come down here for your breast cancer treatments because we're shutting down. I'm thinking, well, who made that decision? Why? I mean, I, I know SARS-1. How come she can't receive breast cancer treatment? Who made that decision? Okay. Yeah. And the same thing has happened to my mother-in-law where she basically she can't even come to the office now. I mean, you know, she can't be seen by her oncologists and she lives in California and it's like, wow, when did we start excluding people from real serious diseases and problems? Are we keeping track 
of the death rate for people that are being shunned away from, you know, cancer treatment. I mean, how many people haven't been getting uh, cancer screenings? How many people haven't been getting, you know, their normal cardiology screenings and their treadmills and all of the things for these death rates that we know are really high? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we don't keep track of the people who died from lack of medical care. We're keeping track mm-hmm. of something and focus completely on that. As if everything needs to be fearful, everything needs to be scary. Oh my goodness, you know, like we've never had infectious disease before. I mean, when I was a little kid, it was like I had measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. In fact, my parents would say, Duke, you know, the Joneses over here got chickenpox. Go over there and play with the kids. And I was like, <laughs> let's get this out of the way. <laughs> let's get this out of the way. Go over there, get that oh. disease, right? Because, I mean, how, can we, how come we're alive today if we have a lousy immune system? We, we're, we're alive today because we have a great immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, so neither of us know why, mm-hmm. right? That's the reality. Mm-hmm. We don't right. know why this right. is the direction it took. I mean, right. we can speculate. Oh, sure. Right? You can, you know, make somewhat educated kind of opinions mm-hmm. on it. Sure. Um, but rather than that, because I, I beat my head against the wall for probably a whole entire year, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm done doing that. You're done, you're <laughs> I'm done like, with okay, headaches. I'm done with that. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> and it just made me crazy. So instead of trying to figure out, like, what would have been the motivation behind this? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to ever know that. So it's a waste of my time to even right. try to spend an ounce of thought on it anymore. I totally agree. Now I'm at the point of, okay, well, what do we do? Right. What are all of the things that individuals can bring to the table right. so that we don't end up here again, mm-hmm. right? And we can start having an impact on kind of waking people up, mm-hmm. prodding people to start asking questions right. about their health care. Evaluate, you know, like what do you what do you like about your healthcare? What do you not like about your healthcare? Right. Like, how do you prevent yourself from needing a whole lot of interventional care? Absolutely. On the tail end, right? Which is back to your thirty eight year old guy that died of the heart attack, right? It's like, okay, well, that you were kind of on, you were at Z in mm-hmm. there, right? You're like, I'm at the very end here, like hopefully catch people and sometimes not. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But what are you doing on the front end to help yourself? Yep. Those really are opportunities now. Absolutely. And I'm not being Pollyanna, believe me, no. because I did almost spend like nearly almost two years frustrated just trying mm-hmm. to kind of combat the narrative mm-hmm. that I just see is so wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you know what? That's not doing any good. Right. So... Right. What do there, we do? There's a certain segment. It seems as if there's a certain segment of society that's going to say, you know, it, it, there's a real division. I mean, it's like the end of division is we believe the narrative or we don't believe it. So for those people who don't believe the narrative, should we just say, okay, heck with them, let them all die. We're not going to take care of them anymore. I mean, somehow that doesn't ethically seem right. I mean, you No, know, and it's interesting <clears throat> that if there were any one group of people that wouldn't do that, it would be the people... <laughs> that are trying to do something that wouldn't want people just to die because you don't, because yeah. you're like foolishly not going to believe that narrative, right? I, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And and what's interesting is that, I I mean, how would they feel, for example, those that believe this current narrative, do any of them smoke? Do any of them take 
high fat in their diet? Do any of them um, not exercise? You know, do any of them, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What risk factors do you have that I could jump on and say, well, we're not going to allow you to be seen because you're a smoker, because you have hypertension, because you have heart disease, because you eat uh, junk food. I mean, we can pick out any, I I, I don't (laughs) think the the narrative people are the most perfectly healthy people on the planet. Absolutely not. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I I had plenty of discussions with people that using this language of, well, if you're not vaccinated, then you don't really deserve to. I'm like, let's stop. Mm -hmm. Like, since when did we have some kind of prerequisite Mm -hmm. that you behave a certain way before you have access to Mm -hmm. healthcare? Mm -hmm. Well, if that was the case, Mm -hmm. let's get real. No one would be in the hospital. There's always those people that, yes, end up with disease or something. But you and I both know the vast majority of people that end up in the hospital nowadays, it's lifestyle related. Oh, you absolutely. We don't get to, as doctors, you don't get to just say, okay, well, I'm not going to treat you because you don't behave the way I think you should behave. Right. I found it unbelievably disgusting and dangerous. Well, that whole way of thinking. No, no. And and one of the reasons it's dangerous is that you're putting yourself into the position of God. Absolutely. Because you're you're putting yourself into the position to say, these people uh, deserve to live and these people deserve to die. Mm -hmm. Now, what are you doing? You're saying, I am God now. I am above you mm-hmm. because I have taken a medicine that you haven't. You deserve to die. Now, if that medicine worked so well, why should anybody care if someone else doesn't receive it? Correct. I mean, in other words, if it's that great, shouldn't shouldn't those who received it be in perfect health and, and bulletproof and have no problems whatsoever because... You know, they, and so you shouldn't even care about the people who are not taking it. I mean, do you care if somebody isn't taking their high blood pressure medicine? Oh, <laughs> you know, since you're not taking your high blood pressure medicine, I hate you and you deserve to die. <laughs> you deserve to die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, when did you become God? I mean, you know, seriously. I, yep. I mean, I, I, because see, what I, in my travels all over the world, I have gone into places that are incredibly dangerous. Okay, the company asked me, for example, to go into Venezuela when Hugo Chavez was there. Wow. And, I, and, and I, I, it was fully my choice whether or not I wanted to go. And I, and I prayed about it because this isn't something that you want to take lightly. And I checked the State Department and they said, well, um, we don't recommend any American go to Venezuela at this time period because if he chooses to arrest you, there's, we cannot get you out. Mm-hmm. Okay, So this isn't a decision you take lightly. And the main bridge from the airport into the capital city was out. So there were two ways in. You had to either drive from the airport, which is near the coast, through favelas where they were pirating cars and stealing cars, or over a 7,000-foot pass through jungles where there were lots of robbers in the, in the jungle. Okay, and so uh, that, that was my two options. You know, <laughs> Those aren't very good options. <laughs> yeah, and so I asked the head of the company, "What, what, uh, what how are we going to do it?" And he goes, "I haven't decided yet. So when you land, we'll let you know." Okay, but I felt I was supposed to go. Okay, because I wasn't there for my. I, I was there to go in to help people. I was there to teach them how to prevent chronic diseases unnecessarily. It, it became a passion for me. I mean, I was willing to risk my safety for their health, mm-hmm. okay? And, um, and I did that in several countries around the world. Well, we landed at the airport, and then all of a sudden there were like three um, uh, forerunners, and two of them had eight gentlemen with long trench coats, 
And I was in the first, and I'm sure there were weapons behind the trench coats. <laughs> I'm sure. Because it was warm. And <laughs> You're like, you don't need a trench coat on in this weather. <laughs> exactly. And so we, we went over the pass, and we passed lots of motorcycle groups and all of that stuff, and we didn't have any trouble because I'm sure the remaining two cars let them know we're, we're, in, we're the protecting crew. And, and so... And so was I in a position where I, it's like, no, I'm not going in there because, you know, they live in Venezuela. No, Venezuelan people are some of the most loving, beautiful culture in the world. I, I mean, when they came to our program, I, they're overwhelmingly loving as a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I wanted to go in because I wanted to show them love. They'd shown us love. I wanted to show them love. Mm-hmm. I didn't go in judging them. And, and see, it's like, it's the passion and the love that that's what drew me to medicine as a little boy. I want to take care and help people. I don't want to sit there and judge them and say, you deserve to die. I mean, I've taken care of drug abusers, heroin addicts. I mean, I worked in uh, an ER and part of my training um, in South Central LA is gangland territory and prostitutes coming in and IV drug users coming in and people on on, on drugs where they were just out of their mind and, and, you know, the county police had to drag them in and slam them onto a, a gurney because they were just so wild and so crazy. And it's like, I didn't say, no, I'm not going to take care of him. Or people with venereal disease, no, you, you morally, you know, crossed a line. Therefore, I'm going to let you, you know, have consequences of this disease. That is so abhorrent. I can't, there's something wrong with people's hearts mm-hmm. when you get to the point where you think others can die. So there, there's a lot there to unpack and like where this started, right? Like where, because I told you I wanted to talk to you about like the current state of just medicine, mm-hmm. not necessarily here locally, but in our country, oh, like God. actually nearly worldwide, especially mm-hmm. in the Western, in the Western world, where did things start to go the wrong direction? Yeah. I have some ideas in what I've seen, um, it was interesting. It came up on a podcast that I was listening to the other day um, by Jordan Peterson, who obviously was a professor at the University of Toronto. Hmm. Um, the woke mob came for him, and obviously he moved on. Um, but he he said something that really resonated with me, that what happened in academia hmm. now nearly started like two decades ago mm-hmm. with big voices, bureaucrats, starting to tell professors what they can and can't say, mm-hmm. what they can and can't teach. Mm-hmm. They have to be politically correct, mm-hmm. right? Which in a university setting, that should be, that's that's the area, that's where ideas come to fruition, right? Exactly. That, there's, not, there's no other point of going to a university if it isn't for free speech and free exchange of ideas, right? Like my experience, yeah. Correct, People right? challenging me, like, heck, that was Absolutely. awesome. I loved that's it. That's where it's supposed to happen. Yeah. But as far back now is almost 20 years mm-hmm. that started to be shut down right. and professors got scared. They're yeah. like, okay, well, I don't want to lose my job. Right. So they kind of just went along mm-hmm. with what they were told they can and cannot say. Exactly. Right. And his analogy is that's what's happening now in the medical field. Yep. Where you've got a lot of big pharma, big bureaucratic entities mm-hmm. are now telling the actual heart and soul and mm-hmm. backbone of medicine, which is the doctors mm-hmm. and the nurses, mm-hmm. right? What right. they can and cannot do or say. Exactly. Whoa, that's 
Yeah. We better wake up. For sure. And that, and that'll absolutely compromise the quality of healthcare because that's absolutely. how other countries. See, I've studied healthcare in other countries. When mm-hmm. I go in to speak, I mean, I, I know how, I've been in the uh, practitioner's offices of many of those countries around the world in India and Russia and China and, and Thailand, et cetera. I mean, I, I had to visit them to really understand while I was there. In fact, the company even had me go in and, um, if if a big leader, a big distributor was hospitalized, they'd they'd have me go down to that hospital to go in to make sure that that leader was being treated, you know, well. Right. I mean, so in other words, I really understand healthcare around the world, and healthcare around the world is more guided and controlled. And people were told for years prior to what we experienced here, and actually, it, it started in healthcare not just in these last two years. It, it started in healthcare decades ago as well. Oh yeah, and yeah. and I had a, a, a myself and another doctor. We had a. Um, a private practice in Southern California. In in between the ER and going full time, I worked as a family practitioner, and we just started from scratch. We had zero patients on the wall when we started, and in in just a few short years, we were fortunate enough to have like eight thousand patients between the wow. two of us. So we were like super busy. We're mm-hmm. seeing thirty five patients a day. I was, and he was seeing about. 25 or 30. We had a waiting list of 20. I mean, we just could not be busier. Absolutely could not be busier. And we got a letter from one of the insurance companies, one of the health insurance companies on page 17 of a 19-page letter that said, uh, oh, by the way, we're going to start paying you instead of $55 a visit, it'll be $35 a visit. Okay. No known reason, no problem. And oh, by the way, if you don't agree, we're taking all of our patients. Well, they were about 70% of our, our clientele. And we only had private patients at the time. It was like the ideal practice. And all of a sudden, we were losing $10,000 a month. Wow. Seeing about 50 patients a day, we were losing $10,000 a month. And I was assisting in surgeries. I was, uh, you know, I was doing uh, hospitalizing. I was taking care of my patients in the ICU. You know, so I was an intensivist, a hospitalist, uh, an assistant surgeon. I was in that role of being, you know, the, the leader in medicine. Right. As doctors were in that time period and so and and there were three surrounding hospitals and those hospitals were constantly trying to say to us oh bring your admitted patients here bring your surgeries here oh please doctor we're better than that hospital because because the doctor was in control of healthcare. Mm -hmm. well with that one move with the insurance company we were losing our shirt, you know, and it was like we became desperate. We had to sell, okay? So we negotiated. And by the way, those three hospitals all uh, applied to offer to buy us. Isn't that an amazing coincidence? I didn't see it at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't understand. I, I kind of looked upon them as, wow, you're saving me. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't realize um, what was going on at that time. So we sold to one of the three. And in that position, I then became uh, my, my fee per patient went back up to $55, now part of this larger entity. So because I'd sold the practice to a hospital group, I was back to making the same thing. And I, I was, um, and um, we were doing well financially back again. Now this is the same building, same patients, same doctor, same scenario. The only thing that was different, and I got a letter from that insurance company, and they said, oh, um, doctor, we apologize so much. We've just had an unexpected turn. We're going to have to knock it down to $53 a patient for a short time period. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. But it'll go back, back up to 55 really soon. And I'm thinking, oh, the only reason that they care about me now is because I'm part of this larger entity, and that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And then 
And, and that was in Southern California. So now I see that occurring all, and it's occurred all around the nation. So around hospitals, all of the practices are named after hospitals and doctors aren't in control. Mm-hmm. Probably. And I think I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I really just don't think the everyday person has any idea. No. And even if they do, they're like, oh, well, that's great. Mm -hmm. I have this really big, massive healthcare system that I can turn to. Right, right. They're not thinking below the surface about what does that mean. Right. It now means that all these doctors have someone that doesn't necessarily have the patient at the forefront of their interest, yeah. that that's the person that the doctor is now answering to. Exactly, and 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 you throw the insurance companies in there, and there's so many forces, and the doctors are as busy as can be, you know, with electronic medical records and all of the, you know, criteria. You have to meet these criteria, or the insurance companies can be upset mm-hmm. at you. So all of a sudden, insurance companies have become the forerunners and the most brilliant people in medicine, not the doctors anymore. So it's almost like, you know, why go to med school? Because all I have to do is follow the insurance company's guidelines to keep being paid, right? We've had plenty of this conversations in our household about um, <laughs> medicine is an art form, right? Yes, yes. Based in science. Yes. But it's an art form. Yes. And every individual is different. Absolutely. But given the system right. that they're required to perform within. You bet. The art form is being taken away, yes. and it's just being replaced by, you know, a cookie cutter formula. You bet. And that kind of came to its pinnacle now when it's like the vaccine mm-hmm. is absolutely the best and only option. Even if you want to keep your job, mm-hmm. it's the only option for every single person. And now it's the only option for even people as young as five. Yeah. That alone should make people go, whoa, stop the show mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Especially when the death rate in those age groups is almost unheard of. In fact, I saw an article the other day that that the death rate among children um, is almost unheard of in healthy children. In other words, the, the statistics of those that did pass away yes. were you know hospitalized or children with multiple health problems, et cetera. Among healthy children, it's almost unheard of. It's completely unheard of. That- and, exactly. And an algorithm that comes from an insurance company or somewhere else didn't sit down in that room and talk to that patient and know where their soul is at, know what their family scenario is at, know what struggles they're having, what's going on financially, what's going on spiritually. Because the spiritual aspect, we, we talk about mind, body, and spirit, mm-hmm. but but algorithms don't take in spirit, and spiritual <laughs> issues really impact people. Yep. Re- marriage relationships, what's going on with children and children getting involved in things and the struggles that they're having. And you can't you can't get that in a ten minute visit with an algorithm, and then you have to put in a code, or you don't get paid. And next, you know, it yeah. that's not I don't think the best way to take care of people. I know, but then people listening to this conversation that are you know subjected to that kind of system would be like, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to make a living? Exactly. Right. It's just, and there, I'm not saying I have the answer. Yeah, right. Right. I'm not saying there is an easy answer. No, there is. But like anything. If we see things that are going in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. I personally believe we have a responsibility to do something about it, right. right? On the personal level, because I am all big. I'm all about 
personal accountability. If you want to see change out there in mm-hmm. any system anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. you have to be willing to start with you. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Instead of complaining, do something. Yeah. Okay. So what do we do? <laughs> which is awesome because it's what you guys are doing. Well, and that... And that which I'm super excited about. And I want to hear the whole story because I knew... I have to tell you, so when the very first meeting that you were at that I was at, I was uh-huh. listening and I was like, how is there ever going to be some kind of healthcare option for people mm-hmm. like it just seems so big right right i'm like right. i get all excited about it i'm like oh if people had some other options and i always think more options are good because it's going to keep everybody a little more honest sure i'm all about it right it's right. like some friendly competition there it's like okay mm-hmm. the truth will prevail right so i was super excited about it but then like i got home and thought about it i was like what the heck how's that ever gonna happen that was really exciting but wah, wah, i don't know if that's ever gonna work logistically exactly and then all of a sudden fast forward not even two months and i'm hearing from people that like this is really happening we are so stunned i, I mean there's nobody so I want you more, to tell the story more stunned than we are i well basically it was a group of people about Mm, I think 30 people that got together, nurses and doctors, that just said, we just don't like the narrative. We don't like what's going on. We don't like how patients are being treated. People are being forced with medications they don't want. They're being forced into scenarios that, that they say no and they're getting it anyway or they want something and they can't get it. It's like, when did this happen? And so... It, it, you know, I, you can understand putting up with it for a while when you think that, oh, well, we're under an emergency or, you know, things are really bad, et cetera. Like, but then all of a sudden it just kept going on and on and on. Well, it, things have to change because... And this was across the whole country. I mean, oh, like yeah. I hear from oh, nurses yeah. and people all over the country exactly. that are like, we're, there's a big, uh, a, a gal that ended up with a pretty big following. And so she's had a big impact. Mm-hmm. She was in a hospital in New York City and she kind of became this whistleblower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's really integral mm-hmm. in kind of doing what you guys are doing in collecting, you know, good, qualified... right. Physicians, nurses, people mm-hmm. in healthcare right. that don't want to be told that there's only one way to do things right. and really at risk of losing their jobs if they don't right. get in line. And and, right? and and get back to the way we've always been trained to, te- to yep. treat people. Yep, absolutely. And show them love and kindness and let their family members come in and be there at their death. Let their mm-hmm. family members come in and be there at the birth of a child. Mm-hmm. Let the family members, I mean, because all of that is incredibly important. <sighs> let children grow up and not have to be, you know, have all of these kind of barriers because you're not helping their development. And so when we met, it was like, you know, everyone vented for like an hour and nobody knew what to do. It's like, well, what do we do? <laughs> Great. <laughs> now that we got that off our chest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's meet again. See I mean, that was the conclusion. Week. <laughs> and and we we had this grandiose idea that well we'll just you know uh, do telemedicine out of someone's garage. I I mean serious. I was about, People about, were desperate, about, right? about as advanced as we were. Our second meeting, um, a gentleman shows up who uh, had a has a ministry that's been in the family for years, and he said, you know, God told me to help you guys, and he says I need a, a headquarters for for my ministry that I've moved up here to North Idaho, and what I'll do is I'll buy a building, a medical building, and I'll take you know part of the medical building as my headquarters, and then you guys can lease out to me the other side. And so it's like, wow, you're kidding, and so. Well, that'd be awesome. And so then the next week after that, a gentleman came up and said, you know what, I think I'm seeing something biblical. And he says, you guys are going to need like a treatment center or a hospital or something. And and he says, I, I'd like to donate land to this this cause and this effort. Now, this is like two weeks, you know, into it. 
okay? And we're speechless. And so he drove us out and he showed us 10 acres and 16 acres and then 45 acres. And he goes, which one do you want? And I'm telling you, Evie, I, I just wanted to cry because I'm mm-hmm. thinking anything more than 10 feet by 10 feet is greedy, right? right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, this is not in my brain. I can't mm-hmm. even imagine that he's even saying this to me. I, it's like a dream. And so I didn't know how to answer. And somebody came up and says, well, I think they need 45 acres. And he goes, well, that's what I wanted to give you. And it's just amazing. And so people are calling and saying, well, I'm, I'm a lawyer and I'd like to volunteer my services. We've got a bunch of lawyers that have called. I, I never thought lawyers would volunteer anything, honestly. You're like, does that happen? <laughs> Sorry, all the lawyers watching that, it. That in and of itself kidding. is a miracle, right? <laughs> You're like, that's the only miracle you ever needed to see, I believe. <laughs> and, and people with great background in, in, in health care and finance and, oh, here, let me help you with your finances. Let me help direct all this. People just started coming. And I, then I started getting phone calls from around the country. And I'm going, how? do people get my phone number for going out loud <laughs> and i'm getting phone calls from like north carolina and colorado and washington and oregon and california and this is what's happened to me and i want to know what you guys are doing and and i, I i'm stunned i i mean i'm i'm still at that stage of we're going to do this telemedicine out of a garage yeah. and, <laughs> and all of a sudden we're forming a non-profit foundation and we're forming all of these things and pe- people that I, they're just, it switched to people started getting hope. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to treat people from our hearts, mm-hmm. not from algorithms. So that's where the name come, mm-hmm. you know, Heart Love of it. Hope Health. Yep. That's what we want to do. And so we're, we want to be, we want to, you know, right now a lot of people are unhappy. They've been depressed. They've been restricted. They've been negatively impacted. And it's like, no, we, we want to stand with you. We want to be there for you. Mm-hmm. Now, when you can look back in your life, you can see, well, maybe this is why God led me where I was and all that stuff. You know, a lot of times at the time, you're thinking, this is just crazy. I, I don't know. None why of this I'm, makes sense. None of this makes sense. That's the majority of my life at the time. And then all of a sudden, like I look back 10 years and it's like, okay, now I get it. Exactly. <laughs> That's just the way it works. Exactly. And so, and so think of my preventive, I, I mean, so I'm trained in one of the best medical schools in the world. So my mm-hmm. allopathic traditional medicine is like top notch the way I was trained. Mm-hmm. And But there are things in, in traditional medicine that have been real questionable for years that people don't talk a lot about. I mean, there, there have been a lot of research that's been uh, corrupted by, by money and, and there are people that will put out research and it's and and it'll later be rescinded, but mm-hmm. by the time it's rescinded, it's been passed on and referred to in 50 other or 500 other studies. So those people down the line didn't know it was bad research yeah. or Premarin and Provera. You know, every woman needs Premarin and Provera, boy. And I've written for a ton of Premarin and Provera. And somebody did a study going, oh, my gosh, we're increasing cancer and heart disease. And Completely. So, and women, women over 40, it was it, like, okay, exactly the women you were giving it to. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And so a lot of that needs some cleaning up. Yep. Right. So yep. there's great stuff there, but yep. there's some questionable stuff there. Yep. Now I've spent 30 years of my life in the natural side. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so in the natural side, there is some terrific research, some terrific information. And, but there's also some, some bad stuff there right. too. There's like snake oil where people are just saying, oh, it worked on me. Therefore, it should work everybody in the country. I, you right. know, some very anecdotal ex- evidence behind ex- what they're touting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what our desire was to be is, well, let's take the best of both worlds. Let's mm-hmm. take the most unbiased, scientifically verifiable stuff in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And I've spent 30 years in this world mm-hmm. and, and longer in this world that what we can do is combine the two. And it's really interesting. For example, I, I mean, and there 
are hu- there are four, four studies that have been done that that four huge studies. There have been more than this. Uh, that for an example, the phytonutrient lycopene. Lycopene is a plant nutrient that causes plants to turn red, like it's loaded in tomatoes, it's in oh. watermelon, and all of this kind of stuff. Four huge studies have shown basically, and and I used to present this around the world in slides. I got the references that um, if you have adequate levels of lycopene on a regular basis, mm-hmm. the risk of prostate cancer goes down about 50%. Oh, okay? wow. Mm-hmm. And reoccurrence goes down 65%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how come every male in America doesn't know that? Now, and these were studies that were huge. I mean, they were done with like 10,000 people or 20,000. They'll never be repeated. Right. Okay. There isn't the money to repeat them. And vitamin D has been known for decades to be incredibly beneficial in reducing cancer. Mm-hmm. National Institute of Health, when people are saying, oh, you got to boost the vitamin D, it's crazy. Everybody's deficient in vitamin D. Yep. And we did vitamin D levels at our institute. And we, when we brought the 17,000 people through, I reviewed personally like 90 to 95% of those. So I knew where they lived, what they did, and how, how much vitamin D they took and what their vitamin D level was. And I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of those. And, and sunlight alone doesn't get 99% of people up yeah. to the levels that yeah. they talk about. My doctor, about. Dr. T.J. Williams at the Institute of National Health in, in St. Louis, same uh-huh. story. Like we recorded a podcast on vitamin D for that very reason. He's like, the sun alone isn't going to cut it. Exactly. And, and, and they talk about it as if it was. And in fact, I had a group of professional rugby players come through our clinic who spend like four hours a day in the sun at the equator and they're Caucasian. So if anyone's going to suck up a lot of vitamin D, it'd be those guys. It'd be those guys. And, and like 90 to 95% of them were deficient. Wow. Right. See, so in other words, if they don't, if they can't do it, there's no, you're not going to have it in North Idaho. Yeah. (laughs) Especially not for like the next couple of months. Oh, it's sunny today though. Well, that's true. I better race out and take my shirt off. Like you better. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, so, shoot. and so, I mean, but but it's been shown to cut breast cancer at adequate levels. Lots of things. So, the National Institute of Health was was charged, I think it was, or the Institute of Medicine, National Institute of Medicine. Let's relook at you know um, uh, vitamin D levels, and they spent like two years and came out and basically said, oh, as far as osteoporosis is concerned, you know, maybe we do need to boost a little bit. But there's like a ton of other things that it impacts. So that's, see, that's where there's terrific unbiased science that's available. That if we can blend the best of to- both worlds, instead of making people dependent upon a system, what we can do is treat the, teach them how to eat, how to live, how to supplement in a way that works into their lifestyle, that's reasonable, that reverts back to like the 50s and before where we get rid of a lot of the chemicals that have been added into our lives that are impacting us negatively. Right. In our so-called food sources, number one. Exactly. Right? I like that term, so-called, so-called food, food sources. I mean, that, that, that's a great term. I like that. <laughs> and and so that we can help teach people how to not be dependent upon the system and and dependent upon other people for health. We want we want to set people free with their lifestyle. Well, and that I mean, it kind of brings us full circle. What out of all of the out of all the tragedy that we've all gone through in right. the last couple of years. Right. I get excited about the potential and the possibility and the yeah. things I see people starting to do for themselves. Exactly. At the beginning of all of this, yep. I was like, what can I do yep. to just lend my knowledge in some way? So I was like, I spent an entire day and created an immune boosting guide for right. people. Because I was like, well, I offered it as a free download. People just go to my website and they can download it for free. It's just my little contribution, right? Sure. I got to tell you something. 
It is the least downloaded free content I've ever created. Wow. In what is now like 15 years of being wow. in the health and nutrition business. Isn't that interesting? It startled me. I was like, what in the world? And what did it contain again? What, it just what? was a, you know, here's how to build up your immune system. Oh. Because I was like, okay, wow. this isn't going to go away right now. And yeah. we didn't know how serious really is this. At right. first, it, we were all scared. I remember right. flying home from Florida with Casey, and we were kind of like, like, we need to be wiping down everything you just didn't know. You didn't know. So right. I thought, well, in the long term, no matter what, people need to know how to boost their immune system. Sure. And I know how to teach people how to do that. Right. So I was like, well, there's my skill set. I'll wow. lend it. Wow. least downloaded out of any content. Wow, that's amazing. It was interesting, yeah. but I'm seeing that change. Good. Because I think it took people, I, I think people are waking up. Mm -hmm. I think more and more people are questioning. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing, like you said, mm -hmm. if all of us that didn't wear a mask everywhere we went, mm -hmm. and I flew more mm -hmm. during the last two years than mm -hmm. ever for business. I fly mm -hmm. all the time, like right. twice a month usually. Right. I should be dead. Right. I'm not. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. People are waking up to that. So, and in that, I see them taking a little bit more active mm -hmm. participation in their own health mm -hmm. because that really is the only way out of all of this. Like you, you said, and I love the term not being dependent on a system. Mm -hmm. None of us like to feel like we're dependent on anything. Right. Right. Like I, I want to be able to take control and take charge of my own health. Yeah. Right. And I see more and more people waking up to that, which mm. makes me excited. It makes me excited for like what you guys are doing because absolutely, that's the model. And, right? and it, it is. And so we, we were thrust into a scenario now where we can, we can, people are truly interested in true prevention. You know, I mean, the way established healthcare has defined prevention is go get your mammogram, go get your colonoscopy. That's not true prevention. That's early detection. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're not preventing anything. You're just finding out earlier. <laughs> and get a ton of them because then you're good, bound to find something sooner or later. Right? And, and I, I, mean, I, I mean, see, if somebody doesn't have that training, and most people haven't been through the life I have, so I, I don't knock them because that's all they know. Right. I, I mean, right. and so I've got a really unique, you know, uh, uh, background, but. And, but so my my approach is no. Let's institute the things that really do you know, help the body be stronger, to help it be more resistant, to make it less. And 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 it was really kind of interesting. I the company had a scientific advisory board, and what I had the opportunity to do was attend those meetings, and they they had the money to bring in the best scientists from around the world, literally. I mean, the most well-known research people mm -hmm. in different countries, and they had different continents that they would always, and so they'd have a couple of meetings a year, and so I'd sit in on them, and so I got to know all of them. And one of them was, uh, had been at NIH for 20 years, and she's the world's leading authority on omega-3. And so, yeah. and and another one was part of the Human Genome Project, looking at, you know, the, the part of the genome that was inflammatory, uh, oh. called interleukin. And so, and so here I've got the world's leading authority on on um, uh, on anti-inflammation, mm -hmm. and the world and one of the world's leading authorities on inflammation in the same room, and they're both my friends. Okay, wow. so I was fortunate enough to be in that scenario where where and 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 she was the world's leading authority because she literally sponsored the international conference on omega three every year. So anyone who did any research in omega three, she knew him personally. <laughs> if I'd call her, she and I about a paper that I I wasn't sure of or it seemed to not agree, mm -hmm. she'd say, "Oh, I talked to Bob about that." Yeah, and he said, "I 
mean, this is all in my conversation. So she, she really was amazing. And so that perspective of seeing that, wow, inflammation is incredibly important. And that's where the whole focus of my book was. Because when I went with... When I went to uh, Japan and I was drawing out their increases, I noticed that heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and Alzheimer's basically all started in the 1940s when we westernized them, mm, okay? Yeah. And it didn't hit me until I spoke in Korea and I did the statistics from Korea and heart disease, cancer, and diabetes started in the 50s after the Korean War. You're like, and, here we are. And then it hit me. It's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you know, somehow when we westernize countries, these chronic diseases go up, and, and when we westernize them, we're increasing inflammation dramatically, and that's why it's the underlying cause. And so if we can help people get away from that, and at the time when my book came out, I realized it in 2005, and hardly, but I had to, it took me four years to run it through the corporation because sure. I wanted to make sure I wasn't misrepresenting them, and I, I get that. I mean, yeah. but they allowed me to, to print it and publish it, sure. and that was great. Um, but there's almost, almost 900 scientific references. Well, since then, I've learned more and had to change all of the dietary stuff because I depended upon, you know, dietitians, nutritionists for that information. Now, in the last three years, I've had to radically change all of that. But we're going to take that information and teach that to people so we can help set them free. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of a good place for us to wrap it up. But I want to end on this on this point, giving people information. Okay. Because... We talked about a little bit before we turned on the recording that the problem with all of the censoring Mm -hmm. and limitation of access to information, Mm -hmm. the the really catastrophic result of that Mm -hmm. is not only that people don't know who to believe and what to believe, but we're we're getting to the point where people are so skeptical of what they're hearing that they're kind of self-treating. Yes. Yes. Like. People just like thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to get any help, and I'm just going to treat myself. Well, and good lord, that's not what any of us want. No, exactly. And 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 they're led then by the marketers of people on TV, not by real scientists, and they just don't have the science background to know right or wrong. Yep. And so, and I feel so sorry for them. We're running into a lot of people that say, well, no, you need to go to the hospital. And a lot of people are now saying, there's no way in the world I'm going to the hospital. I'd rather die here at my home with my family around me than to go anywhere else. And so that's just the way it is. And so And we so, don't really want to see either of those ends of the spectrum, right? A- like there's a happy medium there. Of but people there are is. just so they're they're scared. Absolutely. They're scared on both ends of the spectrum. You bet they are. Right? And, and so they need access to really reliable yeah, information. You bet. And that's why we want to be that blend. We want to be that blend to, to give them truth that's based on science. If I can't, uh, good science, unbiased science, if I can't prove it, then I shouldn't be teaching it. So everything that I have, we're going to be defending. And now all of a sudden people are coming to us and saying, well, I want to be a Heart of Hope franchise in this city. We've already got one lined up. And awesome. another just came yesterday, and I want to be the Heart of Hope franchise in that city so that they don't have to start from scratch. So they, you know, In other words, we'll help them get there yep. so that this whole concept can spread fast. So So can you give us just a quick overview of exactly like how the system works? Say I'm Joe Blow off the street and I'm like, okay, I want to know more about 
sure. about the clinic. How do I, what do I do? Okay. It, it, what we're doing is basically going on the, what's called DPC model, which is direct primary care model, which doesn't use insurance and it doesn't use Medicare. So in other words, it's based on memberships. And so it's, it's such a common model right now that it's, I, I looked at it on the American Association of Family Practitioners website. It says how to start a DPC Really? Practice. Yeah. Oh, well, that's encouraging so too. E- exactly. Right? So even in established medicine, a lot of docs are starting to go down that pathway. Mm-hmm. And so there's conferences on it and they advertise conferences. And they have you know, seminars on how doctors can do that. And so we're following that model. We're basically, what, and we're trying to keep it low. It's not, it's different than concierge because concierge is, you know, like the Michael Jackson doctor, you know, where you pay mega bucks and that doctor is available, you know, 24 seven and whatever. No, it's not concierge. It's a distinction from that. We're, and we're trying to keep prices really low. So people pay monthly, like a, an adult pays $100 a month and their spouse pays 75 and children are like $30 for for whatever basically they need that we, we can handle. So, I mean, as far as, um, um, you know, putting on casts or, or suturing or just Yeah, that normal. was going to be my question. Like, what are the things that... Exactly. You can, you can provide for them. It, pretty much whatever we can do, like you'd expect in a normal doctor's office, that, that that's just all part of the membership. Got it. And so then if, if for example, somebody comes in and they need, uh, you know, they have a fracture or something, or they need a, a, a leg splint that, that costs $75, well, you know, then, then they'll have to pay for it. But it's at our price. I mean, so in other words, we do a lot of the, the labs in-house, or some of the labs in-house. I can't say a lot yet, but mm-hmm. we want to do more and more and more. And mm-hmm. so, but that's where the membership goes to providing the money so that we can afford more equipment and offer more services and and so then what um so the labs in house are all part of it but if we have to send out a lab it's at our cost basically so what we're trying to do is is not not make profit on any of those kind of things what we're basically trying to do is make it so that people it's the memberships that we run on we're trying to and we're trying to make those as affordable as possible and what we believe is that across the board the more people that sign up it'll it'll cover everybody so they've got that reserve and and safe and so then someone will say well what if i've already got insurance etc cetera, etc cetera. well i mean then what you, if they wanted to they can take some diagnostic code for something that was done and go to their insurance and bill it themselves if they sure. want to but we're not going to be involved in that and there's a lot of so how about catastrophic well mm-hmm. then the next step with that is with catastrophic is there's a lot of the shared uh, groups that are out there like Samaritan's Healthcare and you know all of those kind of things where that very commonly for a family of four for like four hundred and fifty dollars or a family period uh, like four hundred and fifty dollars a month it handles the catastrophic stuff for uh-huh. any bills over five hundred so for a lot of families I mean they could have the complete coverage let's say they had I, and our max is two fifty mm-hmm. so if they had because we don't want to penalize people that have six kids or whatever right. so so <laughs> and, and we assume we're not going to be seeing have all s- penalty in their own life right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we assume we're not going to be seeing all They're six like, every- we're not going to punish you anymore <laughs> than all six of your kids already are. <laughs> <laughs> Just because your hair looks frazzled doesn't mean your life is falling right. apart. Like we don't right? want to add to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. And so for basically like $700, people have the office care and the catastrophic care covered for about $700. Wow. 
So, and, and see, that, that kind of a system allows for maximum freedom. And so it allows for, you know, we treat people individually. And so we've got a component of that that's home health care, where people are sending out health practitioners already uh, to take care of people who don't want to come out of their home. So there's an extra fee for that, of course, because sure. we have to take somebody out of oh. our clinic to do that. Right. And, and then there's, a non, there's also a non-member fee. So if somebody wanted to pay for fee for service for that day or, or I can't get into my doctor for two months, you know, can you guys see me? Sure, there's a fee for service that day. And, and that helps the whole program and the whole system. And we're also creating supplements that are unique to our facilities so to help protect people. And, and the, the, some of the profits go back into, you know, expanding the whole concept mm-hmm. because then everybody's contributing it to it. Then we are, we're able to have more offices and spread the concept more because we've got a lot of people coming to us, more, more than we can handle right now. Um, almost, because I, I think it's about to become real significant real soon based on what we're hearing and the feedback we're getting. So we're putting all of those structures into place so it can expand rapidly. Um, a question that I know people listening mm-hmm. and then critics will say, okay, well, how do I know the quality of the practitioners? Mm-hmm. And you and I had a conversation at one point too about the people that you're hearing from that mm-hmm. are medical professionals, highly mm-hmm. qualified medical professionals that are Absolutely. like, I need to change. What do I do? So can you speak to the, some of the people that are, yeah, so, some, some providers? Ex- yeah, some excellent people that have come to us. And what we're doing is we're, we have an application process and a screening process. We're not just taking everyone who's coming to our door. And so uh, I've been in medicine enough where I've known thousands of doctors and, um, we have a pretty good feeling for training and background and how to approach that. Mm-hmm. But there are some outstanding doctors who, you know, like from Washington and I, and, and uh, Oregon and California who exceedingly well-trained, but were t- given the ultimatum. Either you take the medicine or you lose your job. And so they chose to, to take the loss of job. And, um, and so they need somewhere to go, and they're incredibly well-trained. They don't have access. Some of them are going to telehealth and starting their own business, and mm-hmm. I totally understand that because it, when you're stunned like that, you can't you know, start a system like we're starting. But the only reason we can start what we're starting is because God is blessing this. I, and really? I, and, and it, it is miraculous. This, yeah. this isn't just a few people. I mean, I could tell you stories. I'm serious. So many people have told me to write a book. I, I mean, I could write a book already on what's occurred. I mean, we'll talk about a certain need. Two hours later, someone will call and say, do you have that need? And, and that's occurred over and over and over again almost every day. It's occurring. And people are just showing up. How can I help? How can I assist? What can I do to make it happen? And I think of, I don't know if your listeners know much about Revelation, but there's a Chapter 3 of Revelation, there's a church that had the letter written to to Philadelphia. And in that, Jesus, and we we think that we kind of maybe fit that role model a little bit. He said, said, you've kept my word. you got a little bit of strength left, and I'm going to open doors that no one can close. He's opened this door. So it's up to him keep it open he's doing amazing things we're just just going along i just feel i've told a lot of people i feel like no at the door door of the ark i'm doing nothing and it's like the door is open and all of these animals are coming all these people are coming i'm just going whoops yeah welcome get on the get on the boat you know it's just that's well i've been just i've been completely amazed right i told you it's like it was about a two-month hiatus therefore i hadn't really communicated with everybody and then all of a sudden here i get involved in this conversation and it's actually happening it's amazing yeah so kudos to you guys. I am here to support you in every way possible. Spread the word. Like I'm just, um, I'm just happy that 
you're willing to do the work that you guys have been willing to do because hmm. I get it. Like there's so much work involved. Yeah. Um, and like I'm just happy to know you guys and um, support it in oh, every thank way. Thank you so much. And Andy. to everybody out there that's listening, I'm proud of everybody else too for waking up and starting to take an active role in their own health care. You bet. Right? And not being dependent on a larger system and expecting other people to do it for you. Absolutely. We each have a responsibility to take care of ourselves and to be informed. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Thank so, you so much. Yeah, this you is got awesome. it. Thank you. Awesome. Alrighty. Thanks for coming. You bet. Thanks.